Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great honour to be joined by Adam Bleakney. Adam is a four-time Paralympic wheelchair racer. He won a silver medal in Athens in the 800 metres. He is also the head coach of the world's most successful wheelchair athletics program based in Champaign, Illinois with the likes of many, many successful athletes, most recently Tat McFadden, Daniel Romanchuk and Ray Martin. He coaches all distances in track and marathon. Adam, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Liz. This is, uh, I look forward to it. Mm. <laughs> My pleasure having you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your impairment, mm-hmm. your history as an athlete and your introduction to coaching? That's a lot to cover. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was, uh, a late, um, well, probably normal, but later, uh, introduction to the Paralympic sport, not till I was, was, uh, 19 years old. I had spinal cord injury between my freshman, sophomore year of college. And, um, prior to that had really little to no knowledge of, of, uh, what Paralympic sport was and what wheelchair sport was. I think, I think my one point of contact was that I had seen um, in In Pursuit, which was an ESPN show airing in the 90s. Um, it covered wheelchair, different wheelchair racing events. And uh, I think I'd seen like five minutes of it once. So I had, you know, I, 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 but I, that was about it. So I didn't, didn't have much, much background, but uh I was real fortunate that at the hospital that I was at to do my rehabilitation, which was Craig Hospital in Denver, Colorado, I had an opportunity to connect with what opportunities there were in in the, the world of, of Paralympic sport. It was, uh, this was 1995, so the, a year ahead of, of uh, the 96 Atlanta Games. So the first time the Paralympic Games had been held on U.S. soil. And so a lot of, there's a lot of excitement. And, and um, Craig, they, they had some athletes who were, were uh, potential Paralympians come through and, and talk a little bit about their sport and their background. And, and uh, so they're, you know, I've wet my tongue a little bit on, on that. Um, and then probably my, my first real uh, substantive point of contact with Paralympic sport. I, at the time I, I was working with a sports psychologist who um, also worked at uh, the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. So I, I, I wrestled in, uh, in college and so um, had worked with uh, a woman by the name of Roberta Krauss and and uh, and she um, she said, "Why don't you come down to the the Springs and uh, they're having a, a USA uh, national team uh, Paralympic wheelchair basketball camp and and you can just check it out and maybe meet some players and and so um, and so I did. It just it was fortunate that it was just uh, within spitting distance of of uh, Craig Hospital. So I. I uh, drove down with my dad and, and Roberta and, and um, had a chance to watch those guys practice and talk to a couple of players. And, and I, I had no interest in basketball of any sort, uh, given given my background as a wrestler. There was there was I wasn't super <laughs> interested in that, but just Quite the good. idea of yeah, seeing you know uh, very very skilled athletes in wheelchairs up close and personal, and that was that was a uh, a, uh, a pretty uh, transformative moment for me. Uh, so anyway, I guess that I so I, I started. Um, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't too far. Probably about four or five months after my my spinal cord injury, I kind of got through all the rehab stuff and and 
um, and was really just working out. And at that time, I was I'd go outside on the county roads in North Iowa where I was I was living with my parents, and and I would just push my day chair for for miles and miles and miles. And and uh, and I you know I really enjoyed that. That was that was a you know, that that was a link back to my life pre spinal cord injury. Just the the idea of sweating and, and training and and um, getting into that that frame of mind. And so so I did a lot of that. And those, those, that first year, I think I I, I didn't have I was taking some community, community college classes that weren't that hard. So really, I just worked out all day. And that was that was um, but that was my anchor point, right? I mean, that was that's that's how I adapted and and um, transitioned to life in, in a wheelchair and so, so i had some points I, I had some interest in doing some marathoning and and i ordered my first racing chair and, and then i started marathoning and about a year after my my uh, spinal cord injury and that was um and that kind of pushed me forward and then i put so i graduated with my associate's degree that's two-year college and then um was looking to continue my education on a four-year school and and uh and the process became aware of, of the program at the University of Illinois. So I, I scheduled a, a time to come out and visit campus and, and meet some of the athletes and, and some of the staff. And and that was, I, I knew that if if I was uh, accepted and, and there was no, no definite that that was going to be the case, but if I was, I, I, I definitely was, was, uh, was going to um, move out to Champaign and, and enroll. And, and fortunately enough, I, I, I did, uh, was admitted and, and then, um, uh, finished out my undergrad degree at, at uh, Illinois, and then uh, went to grad school, and uh, made my first Paralympic team in 2000 while a while a student. And then, um, and really, I, I mean that that was what I learned as a as a, a student athlete at the University of Illinois. I mean that was you know it's like jumping into a, a cold water bath of knowledge where you just didn't know what you <laughs> didn't know until you, you were swimming in it, and uh, it was such a, mm. a I mean, it was just in in a lot of different ways. It was it was a very much uh, I mean, as another transformative moment for for me, and, and very consequential and, and impactful. And, and that so, was when Marty was that when Marty, Marty Morse was. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. So yep. Marty was was the head coach, and just kind of finishing out his coaching career here. And um, and then I I left school. I, I got a job, and I lived in Atlanta, Georgia, for two years. And then uh, Marty retired in 2005, and and they um, was fortunate enough to to um, to get the job, and came back to Champaign, and that's where I've been for the last I don't know 17 years as as head coach. And so um, I think that answered the first part of your question, maybe. So yeah. the coach, the coach <laughs> is. is um, you know, I, I don't have any formal um, academic background in coaching. I, I have an English literature uh, undergrad degree, and then my gra- graduate uh, work was in writing and journalism specifically, uh, so copy uh, or print journalism. Well, that sorry. prepared you well for coaching. It did, yeah, absolutely. So, um, <laughs> but what you know, I'd always have always been really interested in, in the process and the the why of 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 how how I trained as an athlete and, and I never wanted to be someone who just showed up on a Monday and just followed the marching orders, which I, I did because I trusted what my coaches had had planned for me, but I also liked to know why and, and, mm-hmm. and um, why, why we train this way on, on day one versus day two, day three, there seemed to be trends and why did we do this? And, and, and Marty loved, uh, 
those questions and, and um, spent a lot of time in conversation with me and, and sharing articles and, and books. And you know, he would he'd give me a, an article that uh, from an academic journal to read, and I'd understand about 2% of it. And I'd, I'd uh, come back and <laughs> we'd talk through it. And, and um, you know, it was really that, that, uh, that education, um, you know, both, both just reading and learning and, and being curious and inquisitive and, and um, talking to Marty, but also, you know, you know being always receptive and, and open to um, my peers and, and um, other athletes on, on the circuit and others that had experience just to, just to get an understanding of, of, um, of this sport. And, you know, those, all those, all of those experiences and they, and they continue to these experiences and these relationships and, and the, the educational piece of, of uh, getting a better understanding that shapes my um, my training philosophy, and, and so because it's a fairly so, tight knit community, isn't it? The the wheelchair yeah. racing community right. and, and the coaches within there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, and, and I think that if you uh, if you're willing to seek out <clears throat> that that knowledge and and um, you know, always with the idea that that there's there's something that that can be learned, and that's not you know the I think the more the more information you have, the more the more it demands that you filter out that which is applicable to you and, and that which is not. And, and there's some things that just don't necessarily hold hold water, but a lot of a lot of things you can incorporate and adapt and mold into finding those value points. Um, and I think that's, um, if anything, I, my my background in in uh, English lit, I think it it uh, it did teach me how to think critically and analytically, and and uh, pick things, deconstruct things into parts which I can understand. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think I always I try to approach every, you know, there's there's a lot of things that, you know, at first glance, you know, you you just papers that you've written <laughs> books yeah but i just i don't necessarily understand but i'll i'll try to de- deconstruct it into the parts that i can and then hopefully it'll aggregate back into some semblance of a an idea that my pea brain can wrap itself around so um <laughs> but i think i think too that my goal has always been to find my my closest so obviously it's you, know, you, you try to seek knowledge from a lot of different sources, but I, I try to keep my, I guess my tighter knit group of, of contacts, which I really trust and and tune into people like you that where I'm the, always the dumbest person in the group. And I think if you, if I do that, then I know that everyone else's IQ is higher than mine, that, that everyone's going to pull me up and, and, uh, and help me become a, a better, better coach. And um, well, it's a yeah, team so effort, isn't it? But yeah. you're also a very hands-on coach. You still do all of the training sessions that you set the athletes before you actually get them to do it so that you can experience what it's like. So, you know, I think yeah. that also has a huge amount to play. Yeah, I think you blend that. That well, I just call, I mean, I, I think if when you're in the trench, you just you live in the trenches with the athletes and, and you get your fingernails dirty. And, and, um, and I think that's as important as, as the the information that you glean from research publications and, and so on, which are, are both really valuable, but I think there's a blend between those two and uh, understanding how those are applied. And, and uh, but I think too, just getting a 
I think it just keeps you in, in sync and on the same wavelength um, as the athletes to an extent. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I've always tried to be cautious too about, um, and I don't train with the athletes as much as I did, did four or five years ago um, for different reasons. But, um, but when I was doing all the sessions with the athletes, I, I always made sh- I, I tried to keep myself in check and, and not project my own feelings of day-to-day fatigue onto them because I think that's a mistake too is, is that, you know, I felt like this workout was, was really pressing and, and I'm carrying a lot of residual fatigue today. And so we're going to, we're going to adapt the, the rest of the week sessions because of that. And, and, um, and as you know, I mean, that's not the case. There's some people who are, jumping around like bunnies on, after a hard day and other people are like lost, barely getting across the road. So, uh, yeah. 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 And I, I, you know, I think that comes to the fact that you're, you also have a, a, quite a range of athletes and their impairments. Like you've got athletes with spinal cord injuries, spina bifida, mm-hmm. cerebral palsy, amputees. Do you find that there's any difference in the training needs or the training responses um, you've also got a wide range of age groups because you've got a collegiate program as well as your elites. So do you mm-hmm, find mm-hmm, there's any mm-hmm. trends or do you you find that it's really just an individual mm-hmm. thing? Some people have a, a good day when they're having a good day and some people don't. Yeah, I think that probably probably more so to the, to the latter that I think age, training age specifically, uh, determines the the response more than whether it's spinal cord injury or, or amputee or cerebral palsy, and I prescribe my training accordingly. So, for instance, any any athlete who I know, for the most part, uh, by and large, any any athlete who's an uh, incoming freshman will spend a lot of time just just in the nuts and bolts of the training program and things that are essential but not necessarily exciting <laughs> or glamorous but just just a lot of laying down a foundation from which we can we can move forward for the next four to six years or plus i mean some athletes that i've coached have been here since 2007 or eight i think aaron pike was here in 07 and he's still around intermittently anyways but <laughs> um, but then there are there are athletes so Tatiana McFadden, for instance, who I worked with prior to her as a uh, enrolling here as an incoming freshman, and so I had some understanding of what her training background was, and so and and knew that she had already had uh, some of those pieces, those nuts and bolts in place, and they were strong, and so we could we could progress into training that may we may not see for, uh, for some athletes until their junior year, and so. Uh, so it really does. So I think the last two is, is training age, and it's also it's also individualized. I think once when you get when we cluster them into a group of here's an athlete who's been in the system has accumulated quality volume over the last two to three years, the the disability really is it's uh, irrelevant mm-hmm. to to how they they respond. I, I think yeah, in the racing chair. Those things do come into play when we're prescribing different movements in the in the uh, the weight room, and and then the different functional capacities and and, uh, and realities of each athlete then do dictate determine how those those movements take place, um, and and what we try to to incorporate and include and to best maximize whatever function that they have available. Mm-hmm. Cool. 
So I guess, you know, you, how many athletes do you have at the moment? We have, uh, let's see, 20, 25 athletes right now. And that's a blend of undergraduate, graduate students, um, a couple in, getting their PhDs, um, and then some community centered athletes who graduated and have just settled in at the community. Mm-hmm. And so how do you manage that volume of, of athletes on a day-to-day basis? That's it's quite a large group to try and keep a handle on. Yeah, the, the logistics can be challenging at times and and also the um, well that's it. <laughs> the logistics really of managing that many people either indoors or or out on the road or on the track and and just ensuring um, you know and mostly on the road that's that's more of a safety issue just ensuring everybody's accounted for and not gotten lost and and um, just doing what they need what they're supposed to do but i i have I have great staff I have assistant coach and manager and, and uh, strength coach that, that that help manage and and we just we schedule and typically we have athletes training in three or di- three or four different locations at one time. And, and I, I have, as I said, I have good, good support staff that, that I, that I trust and they understand my philosophy and the system. And, and so I don't necessarily have to be there uh, uh, overseeing any of that. Uh, rather I can, can kind of hit and ping back and forth to where, to where I'm most needed. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, from a, from an athlete standpoint, the value is that there's no other place in the world where you have a critical mass of athletes that are this talented, trained together every single day. And, and as Paralympic, Paralympians, Paralympic medalists, gold medalists, world champions, world record holders, all all converging into the same training space and, and uh, training out of the same zip code. And that's that's unique. There isn't anywhere else in the world that that, that happens. And, and, and the value to the day-to-day training can be well, I don't, I don't, it's, it's, uh, it's highly valuable. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. the, the value point. But, but on the other hand, too, double-edged sword, on the other hand, it often, too, can lead to athletes who are already hyper-competitive to pressing and, and overextending themselves because typically we have athletes cluster into groups of comparable ability levels but if there's an athlete who's constantly trying to press and, and move into the next cluster or, or and not staying within the prescribed range of intensity for that day and then you know they get they get um, overtrained and they're just they're not leveraging the training and uh, and the system as well as they could so so that's the i guess you have you have both ways and so i that's my job for the most part is to keep athletes um, overtraining and telling them that they no, you don't need to try to compress three months of training. Well, you don't need to try and race against every single day yeah. of training. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so, um, yeah, but it is. Uh, it comes with its challenges, but the value is is really uh, of of all the the variables that contribute to the success of this program. The the athletes themselves are the <laughs> the critical mass of talent that train together and for the most part get along very well in a very competitive way. That's the variable that, that um, mm. has allowed for so much success out of this program. And can you screen for that in any way in terms of do you, do you get the chance to screen athletes that are coming into the program through the collegiate side of things as to how they're going to fit within 
that you know, framework. Extent, I don't, anyone who's a, a full-time student and is interested in being part of the team is, is allowed to be. I think when, when we move through the recruiting process, you know, typically I, I try to, I try to put my, I try to spend more time and I invest more time in athletes who I know, but one that they're just, they're good, good human beings and, and they get along with other people. And, and two, that they're, they're committed to the day-to-day process of, of training. I place no value point on, on ability level, rather it's the fact that if, if I, if I can have those two things, like you just, you're easy to get along with and, and two, you like to work hard, then I think that, you know, we, we can, we can work with that and, and do some good work. But, I mean, there's been there's been young athletes um, throughout the time I've been a head coach who were really talented. So from a standpoint of, of just pure talent, likely would would fit into this talent level of, of this group. But but I also knew that they, they just didn't like to train, and and, uh, and that's a big that would have been a big problem. <laughs> so so they just it didn't it did, it wasn't going to work and and uh, and it didn't work and, and that's okay yeah. that's okay yeah so, so that you natural attrition sometimes with if someone just can't isn't willing to put the work in that yeah. they the the, yeah. the, t- the group as a whole kind of weeds them out fairly quickly mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i i think so yeah i think so i think that that my my expectation is not that any anyone be a Paralympic medalist, but my expectation is that you train as if if you have all intention of being that. And and so and because I really the only well not the only but that which matters the most to me and the, the takeaway from being involved in sport and wheelchair racing is that that you bought into the process and and, and the day to day commitment to achieving and, and striving and, and those are takeaways that you can that will translate well into the rest of your life um, rather than just winning another plastic medal or a trophy so what support do you able to do at the moment you mentioned that you have a strength and conditioning coach and an assistant coach um what support services do you have and how's that changed over the years like you mentioned yeah like you had a sports psychologist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like 25 years ago which would have been quite right. unusual at that point in time mm-hmm. um, right. and certainly not something that was available to Paralympic athletes at that point in time right. um, so how's that changed yeah, yeah. we we've had um, so here on site we've had we, we, we are really fortunate and and even when I was a, a student athlete here, we had we had a full time coach and Marty, um, and uh, we had a full time athletic trainer, which we continue to to have that. I think one of the some of the additional services have, and probably one of the most important has been having access to a uh, sport dietitian. Um, and and uh, and I don't I don't remember when. We uh, we started work together, Liz. It was to was it before after Beijing before Beijing? So 08, 2008? Uh, it was two thousand nine. Uh, no, it was after. Okay. Um, was no, after. it was actually after that. It was after London. Oh, okay. All right. So after London, um, and so that that's that relationship with with uh, with the US Paralympics and and USOPC has been 
important too and valuable in, in having access to that service. I, I think that that was a glaring um, missing piece for a lot of years, and, and, and it was me doing my best based on, on uh, my experiences and, and what, I, what I read in books of, of uh, how best to prepare the athletes in, in terms of their recovery and regeneration and, and, uh, and preparation for each practice. So to have that, uh, to have that available and to have developed a relationship with, with you and now, um, and that now continues that, I think that's a real pivotal piece. I, I would like to see, uh, in terms of like sports psychologists, I, I think that's another opportunity for us. And I know that some of the national team athletes have access, um, but but in terms of a more comprehensive, formalized strategy that, that's in place, we don't we don't have that yet. And I, and I think that's as I look at what some of the missing pieces are, I, I feel I feel pretty good about a lot of it, including nutrition. And but uh, but I think that opportunity exists with with attending to those um, those areas in, in sports psychology. Okay, so if we focus on nutrition for a little while, yeah. what do you think the athletes' nutrition knowledge is when they first come into the program? Without fail and, and a few unique outliers, they have no <laughs> good knowledge of <laughs> appropriate and, and, and effective nutrition and uh, or even any sense that there's – that it's a critical part of their success. And I think that there's almost a, it's almost a two-step and maybe more than that. <laughs> and you, you speak to this better than I can, but I, I think that it's almost a, a multi-step process. And one is just for them to recognize that, <clears throat> that, that um, being a high level athlete is more than just the hour and a half of training each day, rather it's, more <laughs> has to do with with the the time that's not spent in the racing chair and in the weight room and, and so and a lot of that is is what they're doing pre and post workout and and so oftentimes it's one recognizing that and buying into it too and you know a lot of times it especially for those athletes that have been had some success at the junior level but not necessarily you know not attending to their uh, their nutritional needs and so there's i think a lack of understanding that what worked against 18 and under year old athletes is not going to be effective when you when you make this jump and competing against the best in the world and and uh and and so for some athletes it takes some hand holding and pulling along and then and then uh, i think then there's the opportunity to educate and get them to have them a better understanding of of how they can approach this in an in a effective way. That's why having having uh, having you as a part of this program and, and now Sally and has been so critical. And then having Susanna Scaroni uh, as one of our current student athletes and also getting her master's degree in the science uh, to have her as the boots on the ground to to uh, see the athletes on a day to day basis and and to work work a little bit closer and and then touch base with with um folks like you and sally i mean that that's that's a nice one-two punch that that uh i think has really shown good positive results with with our athletes uh, and so um what do you think some of the most simple things that have mm-hmm. impact are well i think that um eating before training <laughs> is uh 
certainly you know, for those athletes that are they're training for the marathon and, and some of these extended longer efforts of 20 plus miles as um, having a nutrition plan and hydration plan in place before the workout and not expecting that you're gonna you're gonna be able to apply yourself at a, in a race race uh, pace effort over 25 miles without the right fuel and and so um that happens more you know that happens so frequently and and um you know and some of the athletes say well because of the position that i'm in i don't i don't like to have a lot of food in my in my gut and because their their stomach is is compressed in um because they lay on their femurs and it's it's not a comfortable position so which is understandable but but it's then 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 there's no second thought of well, let's creatively think. We still it doesn't change the fact that these are the nutritional needs that will help you get a better training session. So just to throw your hands up and defeat and say, No, it doesn't work and it never has worked, so nothing ever will work <laughs> is is you you have to work through that too. But but just a simple of of looking at how somehow we can get the fluid and the calories in you and and we need to do that and so how can we do that that works for you and and so that's that's been a big change and then and then even the easier one because it has there's there's no impact on on their their comfort level is post-workout is just having a plan in place having having uh their post-nutrition needs uh addressed and taken care of rather than yeah wandering over the dining hall maybe running off maybe yeah to class because they've got they've got it you know 10 minutes to to get there and and right yeah exactly and then some of them then are you know done on a weekday uh, and we train at 7 30 in the morning for our first morning workout and and uh they may not see a piece of food till three in the afternoon when they come in for their second workout in the gym yeah, and you know, so, um, <laughs> so moving them in, and just creating those habits, which, which I think, you know, I think that's what I think that Susanna has done a really good job of showing them how to plan throughout their day, how they're going to hit these and, it, and that it's not all that difficult. It can be done with, with a little bit of planning and, uh, yeah. And then you see the change and 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 the energy level of those athletes that that spend the time and and uh, commit to it over two to three weeks and yeah and then and then that's you know that's that's the that's the reward is to see those those changes um, um, and, you know and two to see those athletes that buy into that and, and it's it's the nutrition and, and and sleep and being organized throughout your day. And you see those those changes. I, I think another athlete who I've coached for a long time, Brian Seaman, and so he's a multi-time Paralympian, and he's finished just off a bronze medal a couple times at the Paralympic Games, world champs, and uh, so one of the top T53 racers in the world. But Brian, as an undergrad, when he he's a really good example of someone who came in with 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 no real ba- no real background in, in understanding how to, to best manage nutrition and um, or sleep or recovery or understood that uh, if he wanted to be a Paralympian which he did that it was it was a wholesale effort it wasn't just 
seven thirty to nine o'clock because he, he trained hard. I mean, he, he, as a freshman, he'd never missed training and he always uh, applied his best effort, but then it was not sleeping and two o'clock runs to Taco Bell and, uh, and things that just didn't then uh, feed into a, a, an optimal training. And, and uh, he made that change and he made a decisive and distinct commitment to being a 24 hour a day athlete and and within i don't know i don't have very good memory but within three to four years he made his first national team and has continued to progress and 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 develop um and i and he is a good mentor too i always for for some of those athletes who come in with those same habits i although Susanna certainly has um a lot of influence so so does brian i usually send them to brian and have him talk about the changes that he made and, and, the, and the benefit and the value and, and the fact too that you have to make a decision and the expectation that you're going to be able to continue to engage in habits that, that aren't positive and effective and still compete against people who do is, is really, well, they're not congruent. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's just, and that's, that's one of the values too for some of the younger athletes that we, we have um, some of these older athletes have been around and, and act as mentors and, and been successful is that those young athletes can see. So for instance, so I'm a T54 athlete and I compete against Daniel Roman Chuck and Aaron Pike. And I see how they train and I see how they attend to their nutrition needs and how they recover. And so I'm probably not going to get there if I train half ass and eat most of my meals at pandemonium donuts <laughs> right yeah yeah don't and and just yeah as, as meticulous and organized as they are both of those both those guys um just the the fact that right, for all um they are they are they are and sometimes you just some of the the younger athletes that you really kind of have to pull them along you just i just don't i'm sometimes it's mind-boggling to me that you you are once profess to say that you want to get to this level and, and do this. And then you have someone who is uh, in practice with you every day and you can see exactly what they're doing. So you, you likely should match at every, yeah. point, you should, at every point you should match what they're doing because this is, and that's, you know, that's, that's one of the that's a good, good pathway to success. So. Yeah. Sometimes athletes have to learn from their own mistakes though. That's, a good point they do you're right yeah you're right yeah sometimes it must be hard as a coach to watch them go down that path knowing what the outcome is going to be mm-hmm. but I guess you can if they come back they're often a stronger athlete mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah absolutely uh, so any recommendations for other coaches or practitioners like sports scientists or um, anything as far like that as other people that, that I listen to or on a regular basis or oh no just just oh, recommendations oh, oh. that you may have Parasport, for people yeah. who are new to parasport or track and field yeah um i think that um not a super technical standpoint you know i think it's having having some base understanding of the variation and, and the sport if you if you come from a strictly an able-bodied background just having an understanding of of what the sport specific demands are and then the ways to that 
functional ability may influence, you know, some of the ways that, that you train. And that I, you know, earlier I said, really, I don't, I don't make too many changes disability wise in the racing chair, but certainly in the weight room and how we prescribe those different movements, those, those definitely are based on, you know, just what the functional reality is for, for each athlete. So I think having an understanding of that and is, is, is critical. Do you, as a as a coach, do you have a do you have a mentor? Um, you know, so at this point in my career, I just I try to knit myself as close as I can to people who, like I said, I always try to be have the lowest IQ in the in the room, so that I just you know so we can <laughs> yeah so you can pull yourself. I I just think that pulls you forward. So and then two, just always being different knowledge and, and opportunities even if it doesn't seem like it fits with what you would do in, in your sport i mean oftentimes when i'm oh when i'm in coaching education seminars and learning it's 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 rare if ever that there's a direct translation from what they're discussing to what we're doing oftentimes it's it's pulling it you find the pieces that you think you can you can translate into wheelchair track and then and a lot of that is yep. i mean there's just yeah i don't know just a dearth of, of research and, and and understanding and application of our sport and i think that's a that's an opportunity and it has been an opportunity it continues to be an opportunity of creating more points of contact amongst coaches and through coaches education and, and uh um, and i think too i guess also understanding how to integrate your athletes if, let's say you're a coach in a club and 99% of your athletes uh, are, are able-bodied, and how, how best do you then integrate the athlete who's a para-athlete in a way that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, is effective for everyone? And, and generally, generally when it's done done uh, done well, it, it's a it's a training environment that is unique and, and hugely beneficial for for everyone. And, it, and, it's, and so, you know, I think I think moving into those integrated models are and I think that too is an opportunity and I think it, I think it's critical to ensuring uh, increasing opportunities for drafting you know there's there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more infrastructure in place that caters to able-bodied athletes than there is for for para-athletes and so figuring out ways to to effectively integrate para-athletes into existing infrastructure Without having to build something that's that's one-off and, and unique, that um, yep. I think I think that's a huge opportunity, and I and I think it's, it's and it's easy to do. It's not a it's not a difficult, complex challenge. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Adam, I'm going to finish up. What's your favorite food? Yeah, my favorite my favorite food. Um, let's see. I like ice cream, so we I eat that at least once a week with the family. But usually for lunch, I eat mixed nuts and tuna. It's kind of my go-to. And I just, so I get those little pouches of tuna and I rip it open and then I, I'll just pour nuts in there. And then, so that's kind of, that's one of my mainstays. And then spinach too, I try to eat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but coffee probably is my favorite. <laughs> I was wa- I was waiting for the coffee to come in. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's the one thing I have every day, multiple times. <laughs> regularly and uh and regularly yeah perfect well thank you adam i know you've got you've got a busy schedule so thank you very much for your time and for joining us yeah 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 no it's a pleasure and uh, uh thanks for the invite
Adam's program has been successful over a long period of time, mostly due to his ability to surround himself with high-quality people who share his values of being a good person and working hard and working collaboratively, knowing that there's no one person who can do everything for the program. The use of his more experienced athletes to mentor and show the way for his younger athletes creates a lot of depth over a long period of time with his program. And I think he has some really great insight into how to be a successful coach at the top level. I apologise for the sound quality towards the end of that podcast due to a few technical issues. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please share it with your social media. And if you have any feedback or comments, please leave them on the message board. I hope you'll join us next time as we talk to Sophia Herzog, a Paralympic swimmer.